The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. You can get a low intro APR on balance transfers with their platinum credit card. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Happy New Year's. Seeing you guys back in the studio for the beginning of the year is always fun. 23. How was y'all's holiday? We had a really low-key holiday, which was awesome. I like low-key holidays, so... Same. Yeah. Just chill, which is always always nice to just Although, I have to say, Marcus, ever since he was in high school, has done this, like, polar plunge type thing on Christmas Eve Eve. A lot of people do it on New Year's Eve... But Marcus and his friends from high school had been doing it on Christmas Eve, which happened to be the coldest day, I think, in yeah, history. Yeah, it was the quarter history the, of Houston. Yeah. yeah, in the Houston area. Well, guess who was in the water? In this dude right here, and my oldest boy. Yeah, everybody huh? else punked out. Literally, because all bitches, of man, his friends, come anywhere near it, dude. No matter where they are, like in the world, all of his friends do it at midnight, and they text each other pictures or whatever. And I kept saying, babe, are you sure they're going to do it tonight? It's freaking cold. Like it was, I think it was 12 degrees. I was so reassured in my, in, in the confidence of my friends. I was like, hell yeah, they ever want them. Oh yeah. He, f- hardcore. He like gave me this. <laughs> Not this year. Yeah. Marcus they're gave me this. Soft. Thing. No. Yeah. No, he said, you know, of course they're doing it. Basically, like I was calling them. <laughs> punks. Yeah. yeah, yeah punks. For, that. And, um, for my friends. You're welcome, yeah. guys. So Marcus and Hunter run out to our pond, which is not right next to our house. And they run barefoot, jump in the pond, breaking a thin ir- uh, layer of ice, come back. I mean, I thought they were going to get sick for sure. None of his other friends did it. None of them. So right. I have to call them, call them out. out. And let yeah. me tell you something. I, I literally have more time underwater than you have on the toilet your entire life. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, Put that in perspective. That's a tough call. And, and I'm talking about when Hunter and I came out of that water. I was so proud of my son. I was like, that's a man right there. What's up? Ooh, How brutal. Bro. <laughs> I almost didn't make it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. My, head, my shit started slowing down. My stuff started oh, yeah. slowing down real hard. And I, my feet went... <laughs> And uh, I and started then, laughing. I couldn't get my robe. I had that Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> robe. I was trying to get that sucker on. No. And I seven days later, ass. it was 80 degrees. I know. Literally a week yeah. later. It was insanity. Yeah. All right. You guys right, have sorry. any, any big, any big goals that. for the year for you guys? Any New Year's resolutions? Anything like that? This is the first year I've never done a resolution because I'm not really great at keeping it. Keeping them. it. That's fair. So That's fair. I just figured I would fly by the seat of my pants. Mine's always, I have to keep my Christmas spirit throughout the year. I like that. My Christ spirit throughout the year. I, like I said, I lost it the next day that one time. Oh, yeah. So you kind of got to wait. <laughs> Trying to keep and, it. Oh, yeah, but so I'm still going on that one. Nice. Nice. All right, guys. Well, we've got a great guest in store for you guys. But before I do the intro, let's kick it off with a Patreon question of the day. If you could only watch one TV show or one movie for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> 
I like that's a loaded question. Oh, man. absolutely what, it is. What, Trey, Dave, Dave, what do you got, it? man, on yeah. that? Well, I just watched it last night, probably for the 25th time, and it's got to be Patton. Oh, yeah. Well, Dorsey that's Scott. a good one, too, man, you know, because it's got some history and some length. Mine was going to be Band of Brothers or Lonesome Dove. I always have to go with those because it, it's just <laughs> timeless. We watch, that's like a holiday season movie for us, too. I'm a Lonesome Dove all the way kind of girl. I've watched it, like, since it came out. Oh. I mean, I freaking love that movie, and it's so long. You can drag it on, so that's mine for sure. What about you? Back in the day, I would have said Apocalypse Now, but uh, the point I am in my life right now is definitely Rango, hands down. Mm. I haven't either. That's a good one. You seen it? You haven't seen Rango? Uh-uh. Oh, you're kidding me. You're killing me, guys. <laughs> hey, I, I stand corrected, brother, man. I put that on the list. We're going to watch fact, it we'll tonight. Watch it. Yeah. yeah. Hello. It's got Johnny Depp's animated feature, <laughs> and it's just a, oh. a great story. It's a great old West story. All right. All right. Check. I'm going to have to watch that. Tonight. All right. We'll check it out. It's got Johnny Depp in it. I'll check it out. Yeah, I'm yeah, going yeah. that 70s show or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Ooh. Long seasons. That's not a movie. It could you be a movie or a TV show. Well, that changes everything. Well, well we said that's TV a question. Show. TV show or movie? You got a TV <laughs> show? Dove. Dove is a two-part movie. Oh, um, here we go. <laughs> well, that's kind of like a TV show. No. And it's like nine hours or something like that. All so right. it's basically a TV show. Right, whatever. <laughs> you can't get mad at somebody else. That's cheating. I mean, if we're... You can't get mad. Yeah, it's not... Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Hey, thanks for the Patreon question, you guys. Check it out, patreon.com slash teamneverquit. You can get access to behind-the-scenes content, some really cool exclusive swag, and a great community of people that support the show. We appreciate y'all's support. We've got a great guest in store for you guys. David Neese is a veteran and the director of the documentary The Gift, a story about Corporal Jason Dunham, who died in Iraq as he jumped on a grenade to save his fellow Marines. And David is joined by Lieutenant Colonel Trent Gibson, who was Dunham's company commander at the time. David and Trent, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, yeah, we just th- want to hear th- y'all this is tell a, the story. Yeah, this is a unique one, man, because yeah. you, you guys are covering down on one of the brothers so and, and getting their story out, and that's what I want everybody to know. So what what is it? First of all, introduce yourselves, if you guys wouldn't, and tell a little bit about uh, just who you are, and then we'll get, get into it while we're here. Mm-hmm. I'm David Neese. I'm a Navy veteran. Um, I've worked in television probably since what 96 now it's been over 25 years Um, I've worked as a producer director um, and uh, I I met Jason Dunham uh, the year before he deployed I was on a red-eye flight east heading home to see my folks and I sat next to this young marine we stayed up all night and just talked Uh, we hit our connection I shook his hand. I said, hey, man, take care of yourself. And fast forward 2004, I was going through the website. Somebody took out idolities.org. Started going down the list, and his name popped out. I couldn't remember his last name, but all the other things lined up. 29 Palms, small little town in upstate New York, outside Buffalo. So I Googled his, his name and hit the and his picture popped up. And... I sat and wrote a story about it, gave it to a teacher of mine from high school. He put it on their message board. Some of that story ended up in his hometown on paper. And Deb Dunham, his mother, called me and left a message. 
And I didn't call her back. I, I, I just didn't know what to say to her. And two weeks later, she called again. And I let it go to voicemail. And I literally sat there for a half hour. And I, I just kept telling myself, you need to call this woman. So I picked up the phone. And talked to her and her husband for two hours. Within a month, I was on a plane to upstate New York. And that was the start of it. You just haphazardly ran into this guy. Nothing happens by coincidence. We all, yeah. once you get old enough, you know that. Right. Yeah. So the boss man crossed y'all's paths yeah. on, on, a, on a airplane ride. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I really believe in that. You know, like you said, when you're young, you don't think about that stuff. But as you get older, those, those things, those coincidences aren't really coincidences. I think, I think there are things that happen in your life and, and they're there for a reason. I mean, I think there, there's a reason I sat next to him that day. And I, and I think all these years, 18 years later, that, that reason was to tell his story. Sure. You know, that's exactly and, what that and is. All his believe the same thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Man, life yeah. gets in the way when you're young. If you're a guy, you know, you're, everything else gets in right. the way. <laughs> so for right. sure. Gibbs, how about you, brother? I was Jason's company commander. And like Dave, I had a lot of trepidation in making that first call to Deb, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And so I eventually over, overcame my, my fear and made that call. And uh, I gotta say that as tragic as that loss was, that it, it could not have happened to a better family because they are simply amazing human beings and great Americans and within moments of connecting with Deb on the phone that night uh, from Iraq she made me feel completely at ease and by the end of the call I, I felt like I was family and that that continues to this day that's awesome it's always so important and it's just that feel good when you have the family support on something well, he said that the way he said that is right on point in the military world, man. Bad thing happened to a great family. Yeah, but yes, it does. Especially those of us in the service industry. That's just how, that's how it works. I mean, usually and in, in the wartime and everything we go to, we always lose our best. There are, they're always the ones that get snatched away. And what that does is it shines a light on, on the families that produce that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, good on you. Okay. David, so tell us what, okay. yeah, back it up a little bit. Marcus, I was just going to, capstone on that uh having having the dunhams in my life is, is enriched my life uh far beyond what i ever would have imagined and just simply being connected to to dunham's story has changed me in the way i the way i see things that's awesome when did this go down again what year was that no oh nine oh four yeah, yeah April fourteenth, two thousand four. Those are some interesting years for sure. All right, well, let's back it up there then. Yeah. Well, basically, what you know, after meeting the Dunhams and and sitting down with them, I decided. I told them, I said, you know, I work in TV. I'm an editor. I'm gonna when these guys come back, I'm gonna start sitting them down and interviewing. I'll put a little keepsake video together, you know. And at this point, I hadn't even learned about what he had done. Um, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine who was a Marine Corps Cobra pilot kid I grew up with, and he said, he said, have you seen the Wall Street Journal today? And I said, no. He said, that kid you told me about is on the front page. Do you know what he did? And I said, no. What, what happened? He said, go pick up the paper. So I went and picked up the paper. 
And that was the first time I actually learned about what had happened. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. So I spoke to Deb and Dan and I said, when these guys come back from deployment in September, I'm going to start sitting them down and and let them tell good stories about Jason. and, And I'll put a video together for you, which I did. And so in September of 04, I headed up to 29 Palms with all the other family members and, and kind of sat there until two in the morning. The buses rolled in, and that was my first connection with them. Um, I had met one other Marine who was wounded, uh, Gunny Walker, Adam Walker, who ended up coming back to convalesce. He had been shot um, three days after Dunham during uh, the kickoff of the Battle of Useba. But in that time, when these guys came back, I just started hanging out with them and they essentially became, you know, in my heart, they were my little brothers, you know? So I started having down the house, barbecues, cookouts. And then a lot of those case summaries kept pushing me to, to do a documentary because I had done a, a short uh, documentary on my teacher's return to case We went back to case and hiked up this hill at 61 there. So I started thinking about it. And then I started interviewing about six guys from, from Kilo. And it was hard. It, it was very hard. You know, coming off a, a Quezon uh, Vietnam documentary kind of prepared me for this. Because that was my first experience of actually sitting down with someone who had been to war, these old Vietnam guys, and really learning how to have that conversation and gaining their trust. So I sat these guys Because that's down, the toughest thing. You know, mm-hmm. What, it is. What, I mean, don't. I'm not going to let you glaze over that one. That's the hardest thing for an outsider to do. One, you don't Absolutely. even speak the language because we have right. one. You can bet your ass we have one, and each branch has their own slang. The way we speak it, from from body language, just immediately to when you walk in. So that those of you that take the time to to learn all that, it it, it helps. Yeah, absolutely, and and. You know, my, my whole goal was to tell this story. I, I was so blown away by this kid. And, you know, he's, he was one of those kids you meet. And I've only, it's only happened to me twice in my life. You're, you're at a party or somewhere. And you don't want the night to end. You're like, yeah, what a great friggin' kid, you know? So when, when it did, when I found out what happened, it was just, you know, it was crushing. Because you're like, not that kid. Not that kid. So I started... uh becoming friends with all of his Marines. And this is before I decided to do the documentary. And then finally I did. And we started, I started interviewing these guys and it was hard, man. It was, it was emotional. It was, it, it, they weren't ready. You know, this was fresh. And so I kind of put it on the shelf and, um, another case, Sam Marine and myself started a scholarship foundation for Jason. So I put all my time into that, but every year, you know, on April 14th and the 22nd, because he was hit on the 14th and his parents took him off life support eight days later at Bethesda. During that time, every year, I would think about that documentary I never finished. You know, I still had the hard drives on the shelf and I would stare at them. And I'm like, you got to finish that, man. You got to finish that. And around 2019, I, I finally called Trent and I said, hey, man, this is what I want to do. I want to I tell I want to tell Jason's story but I want you and your Marines to tell it because it's not just about Jason. It, you know, it's about everything that has affected all of you over those years, because, you know, in in these 18 years of of being friends with the Dunham family and all these Marines, you know, I told people I've seen, I've seen the good, I've seen the bad and I've seen the ugly, you know, suicide, 
um, divorce, drug all these all these things. Years later, that has time to have, have everything sink in. And so I called Trent and he said, call Deb and Dan. I called Deb and Dan. And right away they were like, we, you know, we have, we've been approached by all kinds of people to do things. He's like, we're under contract with a uh, film company now to tell his story. And that, that contract runs out at the end of the month. And I said, well, this is up to you. But if, if you don't renew that option, it will help us. And they said, done, we're not renewing it because we want you to tell the story because we know, we know what this means to you and you're not going to screw it up. So they put their faith in me and I just kept pushing forward. You know, I, I, I started, um, basically what I did was I tried to get the, the veteran community involved. Right. I kind of looked at uh, grunt style as, as a, as a framework. I mean, that guy started selling t-shirts in his garage. Then, you know, that kind of went over to law enforcement, first responders, and every guy in America who didn't who didn't go in but wanted to, it wants that T-shirt, right? So he built he that guy built a following. So that was my that was my plan, you know. So I I talked to Vince Vargas, who are producers, and I said, hey man, I said we need to we need to reach out to Jocko. And he said I got his email, so I emailed Jocko on a Sunday night, and I said, listen man, this is who I am, this is why I'm doing it. How would you like to have two Marines who were standing next to Corporal Dunham when that grenade went off and survived? And, and Jocko responded immediately the next morning and, and set it up. So I started to get people like him and, and get eyes on it. And I started pushing and doing podcasts, Miller out there. And out of nowhere on Christmas, I get a phone call from, from this Marine, Anthony Taylor. And we spoke for two hours. And he wanted, he asked all the right questions. Who are, who are you? How do you know Jason? Why are you doing this? And at the end of that two hour conversation, he said, listen, man, I want to come in for the whole thing. I said, excuse me? He said, I want to pay for this entire film. He said, I can do that. I'm, I've become very successful in real estate and finance. He was a Marine. I'm a Marine. You need to tell this story. And that was Christmas. Things like that have happened over the last two years where people Merry Christmas, me, by the way. Merry Christmas. Who called me yeah, who called me out of nowhere? Um because he knew this guy, Dan Gabriel, who did Mosul documentary. And Dan's a former CIA guy who wanted to get into films, so he showed this composer our sizzle. And this guy called me and said, Hey man, I want I want to work on this. I'm, i I want to compose all your music. And I want to, I'm, gonna, I'm not charging. I want, I'm going to do it for free. So things like that have happened, and, and we've coined it the Dunham effect because when we're when we're down and we're like nothing's going to happen, something happens, you know. And so Anthony stepped forward. You can't believe 20, what our people are tied into now. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, I yeah. mean, you, you can't believe that whole Marine Corps. That once our generation got back out and and kind of materialized back into the United States. 
I mean, because you got to understand where they snatched us and took us, man. They took us back to the beginning. Freaking Babylon and Afghanistan. That's the freaking beginning. Mm-hmm. And then they, they left us yep. there for a long time. And so when our guys got back, man, they just, well, first of all, they just sat around. We didn't do anything. We kind of rested. <laughs> <laughs> Had a party, a quarantine, a housing, you know, whatever. And now that, that we're back, each one of those have bled in, back into the community. So it's, it's, it's all a matter of just pulling the laces together or getting the word out. Because it's there. Yeah. Like, we got a guy yeah. or a girl, a brother or sister, in something. It's so cool. It is a, it's the awesomest thing, yeah. man. It's, it, it is. And I mean, across yeah, you know, the spectrum. I, I know, yeah. I, I've noticed, you know, I, I said a, a good friend of mine, John Preston, he, he did some music for us for film. He's a Marine. Uh, he's with 2-7. But years ago, I started, I think it was 2013, he, he was trying to push his music. And I said, man, there's a, there's a movement out there, man. And this is the beginning of it. Now, here we are later. You got your podcast. Chaco's doing his thing. Mike Glover's doing his thing. Evan Hafer's doing his thing. But back then, I said, "There's a movement out there going on, man." I said, "This isn't the Vietnam generation. The Vietnam generation came back and kind of just were stagnant. But our generation and the younger generations stood up and said, you know what? I'm not waiting for anyone. I'm going to go out and start this thing and, and teach guys how to surface therapy. I'm going to start this thing with dogs." I'm going to start this thing with horses. I'm going to do a podcast to talk about this stuff. You know, like, like Brian Chantosh. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to have a thing where I bring my Marines once a year and we're sitting around a fire and we're working horses and we're a unit again and we're talking about our shit because that's the stuff that helps them. So it's amazing to see what you and Jocko and all these people have done for the community. It, it, it just blows me away. Dude, it's, our, it's our generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as, we're a splice. I mean, we we all melted together. That separation. I mean, when hip hop and all that. I mean, you want to get technical with it. That's what happened. And then the wars jumped off, and we got hit. Well, and also that's why everybody went in. And I'm talking about we didn't care what anybody looked like, came from, anything like that. I Man, it was all right. about just what. And then where they took us, we we were all we had. Everything was designed to kill us because mm-hmm. they they dressed us up accordingly. I mean, everybody could recognize what we were. You don't think that did something to us? Well, the passion of 9-11, too. A lot of <laughs> these guys about. were, you know, they were in the service just before 9-11. And then it's like, so they sign up not knowing that they're going to be in a war. They sign up, you know, pre-war time. And then when that, when we were attacked, our country is attacked, uh, that passion. And what, y'all were behind it. Yeah. So we got hit here. Mm-hmm. Like everyone in America got slapped. So when they turned around, like, who's going to take care of that? They sent us, all of us. Imagine that. Unleashed the Unleashed dogs. Unleashed <laughs> yeah. the, the freaking war. Oh, man. It's okay. So, you know, the <laughs> civilians want to know yeah. our heroes. They want to hear about it. And they want to, yeah, we want to yeah. know Don't about Don't be ashamed to tell hero. it. We got permission. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're right. I mean, because I, before I met Marcus, I was, had no family in the military or anything like that. And I wanted to know, like, who all of our heroes are. It's not just, the, you know, the one person that there's a movie made about or whatever. But, like, we want to show appreciation to everybody because America did unleash the dogs. It, and, oh, and they want to hear about it. it. They want to hear how badass it was. I'm, I'm telling you, because who do you think has to come rescue me? And every time a SEAL gets in trouble, Marines. I'm, I'm very open about it. Matter of fact, in modern day life and business, if I walk into a Marine, he's not trying to, if he won't go with things, I'm like, hey, aren't you supposed to protect me? <laughs> and army. And, yeah, and your job is to come rescue me, so let me have this. <laughs> I, you know, I'll throw some guilt on him quick. But that's, that's the way it is with us. 
I mean, we we were we we're different from the beginning to the end, and now that everyone's back, man, it it created an environment that everyone wants to hear about it, and that's what you're doing. So so bless you for it. Yeah, and you know, I I was worried about the average person in the street who has nothing to do with the military, what their reaction would be, and surprisingly, you know, from the from the colorist I had that colored the film to as recent as Saturday night, we, we won the Utah Film Festival for best documentary on Saturday night, but the people in the crowd, we did a Q and a afterwards that went, you know, for an hour and a half. And there were people in there who, who had nothing to do with the military. And, and they said, man, this, this film really spoke to me because this, this isn't just about um, the military. It's, it's about the human condition. You know, anybody who's been through a traumatic experience, lost a loved one can relate to this story. So it was it was really refreshing to hear that, you know. I'm like, okay, we're on the right track here because because my whole, you know, I, and I don't care what anybody thinks in you know the entertainment industry. All I care about is what Marines and sailors and airmen and, and soldiers think, you know, the, the guys who have gone to war and, and sit down and, and watch this thing. There were two things that, that I hope to gain from this. One was to for, for veterans at home who are still struggling, we'll watch this film and particularly listen to, to Mark Dean's story. You know, here's a Marine who, who was addicted to painkillers from his injuries in Iraq. When he was cut off from that, he went to the street and, and started buying pills and, and shooting them up. And from that, it went to meth, you know, and he was on, on a hell train for a long time. And he, he pulled himself out of that. He's doing great now. But I, I, I had always hoped that other veterans who are struggling and feel like they're trapped, watch it and say, well, well, hell, if this kid can do it, maybe I can do it too. And then on the flip side of that, for civilians who watch it, I, I, I want them to have a better understanding of what it's like for, for, for young men and women to go to war. And, and you know, I referenced that thing where, and this, I, I didn't go to war, but you know, I, I'm coming home from boot camp and you got to wear your uniform, right? I'm fresh out of Great Lakes. And you always get that person that walks up to you to shake your hand and say, thank you for your service. And you're like, well, I didn't do anything, right? And I don't fault people for saying that, but I don't think they truly understand what those words mean, you know? And my hope is after they watch this film, the next time they do that, they're going to understand what those words mean. Oh, and for those young ones out there, that bothers, he's like, well, I hadn't done anything. I was like, oh, you will. You signed up. If somebody came up to you and threw one of those thank you for your service lines on you, even if you hadn't done something, it's coming. Mm -hmm. So save yeah. it for later. Yeah. When your ass starts to complain, saying no one ever, hey, I gave you one. Uh, you don't remember? That kind of thing. That, that's how that works. You know how it is in the military, man. We're our own breed. <laughs> Crazy stuff just yeah. happens to us because. So can you tell us about Jason's story and who he was, where he came from and all that? Like his actual, what the documentary is about? So Jason came to us with... Six other NCOs from 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Uh, the day after we got back from our post-deployment leave in September of 03. So I completed EWS as a young captain in Quantico, and TMO was packing my trash. And I got a phone call from the battalion executive officer, now Brigadier General Anthony Henderson. And he said, hey, uh, we need you over here, and you're flying out of LAX in two weeks. Uh, roger that. So we drove west, bought a house on the road, dumped the house off on the wife, got on a bird, and flew to Iraq. 
spent three months with Kilo in country. Where are we all and at now? Where'd y'all go in at? We were in Car- in Karbala, south of Baghdad at the time. Uh, uh, doing stability and support good times. operations. <laughs> great times. Yo, what's that? I was like, great times, yeah. bro. Yeah, 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 I know. Well, it. shit, I mean, that was when, that's when we were rolling around in Humvees without doors. How and, about that? You know, mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. That was completely different Single when we went back in 06 and 07. Alone and unafraid. Oh, hey. That was yeah. the time. That, that I mean, okay, I say it sucked that they got we got thrown back there, but we did don't think that we didn't make it our time. Yeah, for yeah. our listeners, <laughs> 04 is really early. It, well, hell so, yeah, it was right when everything yeah. started kicking up. Because there's two West. wars going on. Everybody who doesn't know anything splices yeah. those together. Mm-hmm. Like you, They don't know that, that there's a complete difference between the two when they came off, when they went on. So, But if you're yeah. in, you do. If you're, if you're one of us, you do. In 04, just for the listeners, like context i mean that was like the wild west years later it's, a, it's you know it was more traditional warlike it was a 20 but, year war this, yeah, we, but we're talking about it, it this is the very, beginning part of it yeah. yeah very wild west no that's exactly what it was and that that term itself wild west was what we started using mm-hmm. when we were preparing to go back we knew that what we were going back into was not the same show that we had just left and uh, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines was the first Marine infantry battalion to come back to Iraq for OIF-2 in 04. Uh, we were back stateside for five months and then pushed back um, in late February. I left on advance party with my uh, late company gunny, Elia Fontecchio, on Valentine's Day of 04. Uh, and that's that's the Marine Corps' way of. of oh yeah, I was about to say that's a special appreciation deli- <laughs> for families, <laughs> right? Hey, when do you want to send them? Frickin' Valentine's Day. When do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so during those intervening months, uh, you know, we we spent a few weeks on post deployment leave, and then came back. The day we came back, we had. Uh, 30-something uh, NCOs cross-decked from, from 3-4 to 3-7 because they were too short to redeploy with 3-4. So we knew that something was going up and that 3-7 would be going back quick. So uh, anyway, we got seven of those NCOs. And at the end of our first day back, we had a company formation uh, just to put things in context for the Marines. and and welcome them back from leave and, and tell them to tighten up their bootlaces because we were about to hit the, the ground running. And also I wanted to recognize the the seven new members to the Kilo family that we'd gotten that day from 3-4. And so then I turned the uh, formation over to the company for Sergeant. And then I took those seven NCOs aside there in the ditch by the barracks in 29 Palms. And I knew I, I needed to say something important to him. So I remembered what I told Kilo on the day I, I took command in, in Karbala back in, in May of 03. And I told him that I believe in three things as a Marine, that I believe in leadership by example. I believe that in self-sacrifice for the greater good and that one man can make a difference. I told them that's what they should expect from me. 
because that's what I'm going to expect from them. And one of those seven Marines was Corporal Jason Dunham. And uh, by mid-December, he had developed a reputation in the company as a, I hesitate to use the term natural leader, but that's where his instincts lied because um, he was humble. He was empathetic. Um, he was respectful. And he led by example, personal example. And I, I knew we were going back into an unconventional gunfight. And I didn't like the way the conventional task organization of the company had operated during those three months in Karbala. And so I, I knew that I wanted 12 equally capable rifle squads within the company. So I dumped the company in a pile and instructed the first sergeant to put a list of 122 trigger pullers together uh, by rank. And we only had two sergeants in the company at the time, a dozen corporals. All the rest were lance corporals and 30 brand new PFCs and privates. And I told him we we're going to hold an NFL style draft. And I want you to start with kilo one. They get first pick first round. Kilo four will get fourth pick first round. And to make it equal, we'll just reverse it on the second round. So second round, fourth platoon, you get first pick. And we had two lieutenant platoon commanders at the time and two staff sergeant platoon commanders. One of those was Staff Sergeant Adam Walker that uh, Dave Neese mentioned earlier, who had been wounded months later in in Iraq uh, after Jason. And then one of those was Staff Sergeant John Ferguson, who was the acting platoon commander for Keto 4. And his first pick was Corporal Travis Strucker, a young wrestler from Iowa. And his uh, second pick for squad leader was Corporal Jason Dunham, even though he was a machine gunner. Not at 0311, but 0331. And even though he hadn't been to combat, like so many Marines in the company, uh, Ferg had seen a lot out of Jason, and he liked what he saw. So he was confident that Jason had the leadership qualities necessary to lead a, a rifle squad of American sons. And the combat experience was not a necessary prerequisite for Ferg. That's how Jason ended up as a squad leader. How old was he? He was, uh, well, he was born in 81, so that he was, uh, shit, he was 23 by then. So Jason was one of our, our 12 squad leaders. You guys loaded up and pushed over what month in 04? Uh, the main body of the cup, the battalion got there in late February. Okay. Oh, in the wintertime. Oh, yeah, it's the 14th. That's right. Yeah. Full benefit. Yeah. So how long so were y'all in country? How, what was y'all's primary rhythm when y'all were out there? Like, when, y'all's mission set when y'all were rolling out for him to that led up to this? And how long were y'all in country? Well, we were in country seven months, standard 
uh, deployment cycle for Marines. Uh, two weeks. Man, there's to... no such thing as a standard deployment cycle for a freaking Marine Corps. Did you hear what that man just said? <laughs> so they want to see the days, bro. <laughs> so the intent was to for a battalion to to be doing their job for six months, and you get two weeks on the front end to for arrival, staging, and relief in place, and then two weeks on the back end to. Uh, turn over your zone to the incoming unit and then process out. So seven months, we got out of there in early September of 04. I used to, just not to change the move, but watching y'all have to go through your rotation cycle when y'all would get pushed to the left or the right. Marines are the best because they're so squared the hell away. That's just a thing with them. I mean, even in the field. And the best part is when they get extended because then it it starts to run the wrong way. And the only way they can get rid of that anger and all that built-up frustration is through discipline. And I I mean, you'll see, watch a gunny just... I'm talking about when they have to shave, like you missed a spot. (laughs) And just screaming. I mean, anything they can do to get that pressure off. Anything they can do. How long were y'all in country? You said seven months, but I mean, before the uh, Dunham got... Okay. Yeah, so we really we took over the mission in early March from first to the third Cav U.S. Army, and we took our first battalion's casualties. I be- believe it was around uh, St. Patty's Day, and then so we had been in country. F- We'd been in zone for a month because I had to give up two platoons to Lima Company. Lima Company was designated the battalion main effort up at the border checkpoint with Syria in the city of Huseba, right on the Syrian border. And so Captain Rick Gannon, he he was lost on the 17th, three days after Dunham was hit. Uh, But he had Lima Company. Battalion commander told me I needed to give up two of my two of my platoons to Lima just before we pushed over there. And I only had four platoons and I, I was thanking the stars that I, that I decided to make four platoons. <laughs> so I actually had two good rifle platoons to give up and still keep uh, some degree of capability within the company. Um, and so being the main effort, uh, you give them your best. And my best uh, because the, the platoons are all brand new and, and freshly reorganized, uh, I gave him my best platoon commander, who was Lieutenant Dave Fleming with Kilo One. And then I gave him one of my two unknowns. I had two brand new platoon commanders, uh, Tim Burke, Kilo Three, and, and Brian Robinson with Kilo Four. So I gave him Kilo Four. It was an arbitrary pick. So I gave him two platoons, and then we went to work, and Rick Gannon went to work with six platoons up in Huseba. And so Kilo 4 was up there for a month, and one of the promises that 10 Colonel Lopez had made me was, you got to give up two platoons, but after a month, once, once we get our feet on the ground and get things stabilized, then I'll, I'll give you one of those platoons back. So in early April, I got Kilo four back and Rick Gannon, he got to pick which platoon he kept and he kept Kilo one. 
so I got keto four back and then, uh, right after we got him back, um, we had a, a supplementary mission to provide security for a special operations slash CIA unit that was, uh, operating out of the battalion firm base. So, uh, Lieutenant Robinson tasked that to Kilo 42, Jason Dunham. So Dunham got to be away from the flagpole for a while on independent duty with his platoon. Or I'm sorry, with his squad. And then uh, on the, I don't know, maybe the 13th of February, Robinson rotated another squad in there and so got Dunham back. And on the afternoon of the 13th when Lieutenant Colonel Lopez called me into the op- his office and said, I need you to get me in zone tomorrow. Uh, Cause we're taking these 30 brand new Iraqi policemen who just went through our police Academy who that he had stood up on his own volition, understanding what was needed. Uh, we had an attached military police platoon to the battalion. So we had those boys kick off a police Academy for Iraqi police. He said, I want you to take these, these brand new uh, police graduates and I'm giving them all to Carabola. And I want you to, to get them integrated into the police force. And I want you to plan a patrolling operation with them for 96 hours, four days. I'm sending you in zone. Uh, you're going to work shoulder to shoulder with the Iraqi police. And I, I want people of Parabola to see that the Marines and the Iraqi police are here to protect them. So I went back and, and grabbed Lieutenant Robinson because Kilo 4 was on the on the patrol schedule. And I said, I need a, a squad to get me in zone tomorrow with the battalion commander. We're going to the Iraqi police station. And then we're going to reconnoiter a patrol base for this four-day company patrolling operation. And so Robinson grabs Dunham and tasked him with the mission. And then Dunham turned to on mission prep. And he spent all day getting his guys ready for the mission. And the last thing he had to do was, was write the patrol order. So in the morning, he could brief his Marines on every single nut and bolt they needed to know to conduct the mission successfully the next day and he was up it was hell it was midnight and it was me and him in the in the company cp and the radio operator behind me and don was sitting there bare chested in his utes and boots at this table in the cp and his two fire team leaders bill hampton and josh carbajal walked in with the plate of chow that they had gotten from Midrats, our battalion um, mess section always put Midrats on at midnight for the units there with in battalion speed to ensure that Marines who were operating around the clock could get some chow at night. And uh, they walked in with this plate of chow and we looked up and said, what's this? And they said, well, you've been taking care of us all day. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, you're not taking care of yourself. We want to make sure that you at least eat something. 
And when I saw that unfold before my eyes, I knew that that Dunham was the right choice as a squad leader and that we had someone really special on our hands. Because any, any leader who inspires his subordinates through personal example to then return the favor and take care of him, that's a true leader. And I wanted to, I thought I should get up and take a photo of him, but I was smoked. And in the end, I was just too tired and lazy to get up and get my fucking camera. I regret not taking that photo. And I thought to myself, seeing what I just seen with his team leaders, I thought, what would I ever do if I lost a Marine like that? And the next morning, we rolled out, on the, and on the way out, it had become company SOP in the previous week after we lost our first Marine to a massive enemy ambush up in Sada. As we rolled out, every freaking patrol performed a, an IA drill, immediate action drill for enemy contact to a flank. And uh, so for two... They rehearsed it and they, they performed the IA drill that didn't get it quite right. And Dunham knew it. So he called his team leaders in and they came up to the hood of my Humvee and I we talked about what they had done wrong and what they needed to do to correct it. And Dunham had this look on his face like he had let me down. But we had a mission to do. So I slapped him on the shoulder and I said, we'll fix it, but we, <clears throat> we got a job to do. So let's go do it. <laughs> so we pushed out and we got to the police station. We coordinated with the police chief, got everything set up and battalion commander left for Lima company's position. And we set to reconnoitering an abandoned water treatment plant behind the police station that I was going to use as our patrol base for that patrolling operation with the Iraqi police. And in short order, we started hearing explosions to the West, uh, which is where Lima company was. And we assumed that Lima company was getting mortared again because they'd get, been getting mortared for two weeks straight every day and hadn't been able to get those guys. And so Dunham came running up the ladder well to the roof where I was. And I said, what do you think? He said, I, lean, I think Lima's getting hit. And I said, well, let's go get those motherfuckers. So we ran out of there and started running up the MSR to the west. And Dunham's radar operator, Jason Sanders, called our vehicles that had been satelliting security around us and they linked up with us. And by the time we got into the VIX, I then had access to the battalion radio net and we knew that it wasn't Lima company getting hit, but it was Tank Colonel Lopez's patrol had been ambushed halfway to Lima's position. And by the time I put two and two together, 
an RPG flew over the vehicle in front of me, almost taking out one of Dunham's second fire team leader, Josh Carberhall. And so we unasked the Vicks and got up against a wall for cover. And uh, I told Dunham we need to clear out that village. He says, all right, so you go with, he told me to go with Carbajal, and he was going to go with Hampton and Ferg. So he split his two fire teams up, and I started clearing out the village from north to south on the west end with Carbajal's team, and Dunham was working with Hampton's team on the eastern half of the village. In short order, Dunham's and Hampton's section hit a stack of vehicles that was trying to get through the village but not get ambushed like Colonel Lopez's unit had. So they were local vehicles saw that there was combat action going on on the MSR off the MSR and started working their way around, you know, via a detour through that village. And Ferguson assessed the situation and told Dunham, we need to start checking these vehicles because some of them most likely were not innocent civilians just trying to get out of trouble, but some of them were probably insurgents who made that trouble. And so Dunham went for the second vehicle in that stack, which was a white Toyota Land Cruiser with four military age males in it. And if ever there was a target indicator in Iraq, it's a Toyota Land Cruiser with four military age males. You can guarantee that whoever's in that Vic is up to no good. And uh, so Ferg was on the left side of that vehicle and Dunham was on the right. And Dunham went for the driver's door and the guy who was in the driver's door jumped out. Everyone jumped out of the vehicle, but the other three guys ran away. But the guy in the driver's seat jumped out and tried to choke Dunham. And so Dunham put a knee in his chest and took him to the ground. And Dunham was a big boy. He's no one I would ever choose to grapple with. And this guy who picked that fight, he was he was smaller than me, and I'm 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 a pretty small guy. So the fact that that guy was willing to do that meant he was there to fight. He was there to fight Americans. And uh, as that happened, Miller, who was on the left side of the vehicle, had called out a warning that there were weapons in the vehicle, and. He saw what was happening with Dunham, so he went around to assist. And then Hampton, the fire team leader, came around to assist. Meanwhile, Ferg, the platoon sergeant, was trading shots with the three guys who had got out of the vehicle. They were shooting back at him. So Ferg was trying to provide cover and fire while this tussle was happening on the ground. And... Uh, Miller and Hampton heard Jason call out, no, 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 watch his hands. And then a blast engulfed all three of them. And the radio operator, Jason Sanders, 
was about 10 meters behind him and saw the whole thing and he assumed they were all dead. And then out of that cloud of smoke and dust stumbled Miller and Hampton. And Sanders called guys to get up and grab them and, and get them behind cover and start treating them because they were bloody. And then he looked down the road and then the, that guy who was in the, who'd been in the driver's seat, the insurgent, he jumped up and he took a look at Sanders and Sanders looked at him and he turned to turned to run and Sanders put a mag in him. And then he ran up and grabbed Dunham, who was laying in a pool of blood, and drug him back to, to cover as he called for Ferg to cover him. And then Sanders got up on the battalion radio net and started calling for a casual evacuation. And that was a really long day. Was it what time? This was this in the morning. Yeah, it was first, around first thing we, we got moving we out. Pushed yeah. at zero eight. It was probably ten hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all were on y'all's way out to a cop formation. Y'all running with the police, right? Just just to kind of give everybody. Well, no, what no, I, no, it was we we had already coordinated with the police, and I was just reconnoitering the patrol base. Yeah. And. Battalion commander had headed up to Lima Company's position to to pay them a visit, and just got hit on the way. And and what what had been happening in the days prior? There'd been a massive infiltration of enemy fighters into zone across the border, and the intel picture had not quite put it all together. But they had all come in as part of a coordinated effort to to hit American forces uh, throughout the zone from Ramadi out all the way out West to Al-Khan. Yeah. And uh, so we had a significant <laughs> enemy force in zone, but didn't quite know it yet. Oh, well they'd roll in back in those days. Like I said, it was the wild West. I mean, they had a, imagine the old West here where they had flyers, they'd pass out and be like, Hey, who here wants to go get in some trouble, fire a gun, kill some Americans. We know where they're at. Here's a map and pay them. And them jokers would show I mean, It's just like that. It was like gunfight central. If you could drive around and find like there's some Americans right there. Don't worry. We'll, they'll come to us. Well, earlier, um, <clears throat> when David was talking, he had said that he died days later. So when y'all got him, when you extracted him, he was still breathing. Was he conscious? Yeah. Yes, he was still con he was not conscious. He was unconscious, but he still had a pulse. His vitals were good, though weak. So So what did uh, he get hit by? Do y'all know? Do we even know? So yeah, it was a uh Mark 36 Mills bomb. All right. A British made grenade. Uh because there was as I was investigating the scene after the incident, after Dunham uh, Miller and Hampton were evacuated. I started putting all the pieces together and uh, they had RPGs, RPKs, AKs in that vehicle, as well as uh, one uh, Mills bomb grenade. 
and there was a safety pin to another one in the floorboard of the driver's station of that vehicle. So we think what happened was that uh, that guy had he had pulled the pin on the grenade, but it, he kept it in his uh, in the waistband of his trousers. Oh yeah, it came out to scrap. Yeah. Is that what yeah. he did? That's crazy. That every little... every moves that we killed over there, uh, those guys all, all carry grenades. Oh, the grenade teams are the worst, man. The worst. So when um did he ever come to? No. He the most significant conscious event that occurred with him was when he was evacuated to Al Assad Air Base. Uh, from all time, uh, that day that it happened, and due to his nature of his injuries and his vital signs, uh, he was rendered expectant, and so he was put into a small room until he passed. Was he standing and up, or was he on the? Were they on the ground when that thing detonated? Yeah, yeah. Dunham was on top of the guy. Oh, check. So all, that guy didn't make it though, right? Well, he 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 survived the blast, and he then Sanders put a magazine in him. Sorry, go uh, ahead about when he was in the room. He was in the expectant ward, we'll call it, with uh, Lieutenant Commander Heidi Kraft, who was a Navy psychologist. Uh, down Al Assad, and she they we had a lot of casualties from the entire zone were coming in, but she knew that he was still alive, and and she felt that, that at least he ought to have someone at his side, and she, she sat in there with him and talked to him, and at some point she felt him grip her hand mm. and she told him if you can hear me you know squeeze my hand and he did it mm. well wow. and uh that's when they figured out that he was not quite expectant and so they got him out of there and on the bird uh, um baghdad and then launch tool and Quickly from Ashtul, he got to Bethesda, and there his parents uh, met him and stayed at his side until uh, until his dad Dan had to make the decision on the twenty second to remove him from life support because one of the last things that Jason had told his dad while he was on pre-deployment Christmas leave. Uh, like that whole incident where Dave Neese wound up on a bird with Jason Dunham. Mm -hmm. That that's what we're talking about. And Jason told his dad, he said, if for some reason I come back, but basically, but I'm a vegetable. I, I do not want to live like that. Don't let me, Stay like that one day if I'm going to spend the rest of my life that way, which was incredibly prescient given how it all shook out. 
Yeah. So on uh, the 22nd, eight days after the incident with, uh, with the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Hagee at their side, uh, they had Jason removed from life support at Bethesda. Mm. Such a hard decision, but when he's the one that made it, you can't really argue with that. I'd like to add one thing to that. Um, <clears throat> things that I have learned over over years. Um, the day of that incident, Jason was over that insurgent, and he took off his Kevlar helmet and placed it on the grenade and then laid down on it mm. when the explosion went off. And Trent, Trent can attest to this, this other thing I'm going to say, and he can explain it better. Two weeks before that, there was a conversation going around, and, and Jason was talking about, you know, what would you do in, 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 if there was a life grenade in front of you? What would you do? And Jason told Bill Robinson, his platoon commander, well, what if you put your Kevlar on? And I'll let, I'll let uh, Trent tell that story. But I, I, I was, it was just incredible to hear. Yeah, so, uh, like I said earlier, that was a really long day. And it all, obviously it all started, really started when, when I got to the scene of the incident and we had heard gunfire from Dunham's element and we started running towards the sound of it. And the sniper that I had brought along on the patrol she reconnoitered sniper positions for the patrol base. He cut us short and told us to head south and cut off a vehicle that they had seen fleeing the scene. So we pushed south towards the train tracks there um, at the southern end of the village and didn't see any civilian vehicles. But then two of my Humvees raced by. Uh, going as fast as a Humvee can go. They actually, both of them flew off a three-foot embankment without even so much as braking. And that was the ground evac that was responding to uh, Sanders' call on the radio to evacuate those freedom marines. So by the time we finally made radio contact again with Hampton and Dunham's element, I got to the scene and, and there was this total land cruiser with all four doors open and a bunch of weapons stacked against the wall. And I walked right up to Ferg, who was standing in the middle of the that dirt road in front of the vehicle. And I didn't even say a thing. He just started off and he said, hey, sir, Hampton and Miller are going to be okay. And there was something about the way he said it that implied someone wasn't going to be okay. And I said, what the fuck are you saying? He said, it's Dunham. And anyway, we secured the site and I started inspecting the, the weapons that had come out of there and Ferg explained the grenade that they had found and the, the safety pin to the other grenade. 
And as I was looking at the weapons stacked up against the wall, I saw something that appeared to be Kevlar. And I picked it up and it was flat. And because it was flat, I assumed that maybe it had been part of a Humvee door because the armored Humvees, the doors are armored with layers of Kevlar. And we had had our battalion's first casualties had occurred, I think, on the 17th of March, um, probably two, three hundred meters from where we stood, where a vehicle had struck a, an anti-tank mine and had killed two Marines. And in intervening days, we had rolled up a couple of insurgents in town that had a, a cellular phone, a GPS with grid coordinates inside the battalion firm base. And they had uh, one of the Marines who had been killed was a PFC Smith. Uh, they had his ID card. So we knew that they were scrubbing the kill sites. And I thought that maybe that his, they had just had a piece of Kevlar from one of the doors. But as I was inspecting it, there was a familiar shape to it. And I realized it was the shape of the, the ear scoop on the side of the, our Kevlar helmet. And then I, I realized I was holding a piece of an American helmet, but it was flat. Mm. And I turned to Ferg and I said, where's Dunham's helmet? And so he called to the Marines to grab Dunham's gear. And they had his deuce gear and his rifle, but they didn't have his helmet. And I'm, I'm looking around me. And for the first time, I realized there were tiny straps of Kevlar covering that road. Probably over 100 square foot area was Kevlar scraps. And I told Ferg, we need to pick this shit up. I want every single piece of it up because the last thing I wanted the enemy to know was that they could get to us. And one of the Marines had a couple of two gallon Ziploc bags in his, in his butt pack. So they broke those out and they policed up all the Kevlar and it filled two, two gallon Ziploc bags, four gallons of Kevlar on that road. And so I just assumed that Dunham had been facing the grenade when it went off and it had ripped his helmet off his head and blown it apart. Two days later, I was sitting in Kilo 4's platoon area just to get my finger on the pulse and see how they were doing. And I, I was sitting on Sanders' cot with him. And he started telling this story, one that Dave alluded to two weeks earlier when they were still working for Lima Company and Captain Gannon up at the Huseba firm base. They were between patrols and Marines were talking about the kind of shit that Marines talk about in combat. And the topic came up, what do you do with a, a live grenade? <laughs> and and Dunham had this idea that if you, you covered it with your floor, that it would uh, that it would suppress the blast. And so he and Tenet Robinson and Staff Sergeant Ferguson were having this discussion about it. And 
Robinson said, well, first off, there's, there's no way you could even get your helmet off in time because the grenade has a, a three to five second fuse. And then I said, really? And he stepped away and he came back with his helmet on his head. And he looked at Tenor Robinson and he said, time me. So Bull hit the timer on his G-Shock and within a second, Dunham tilted his head forward and slapped his helmet on the deck. And uh, when I heard Sanders relaying that story, they were sitting on his cot. I, I understood exactly what had happened. Wow. And so I went straight over to the battalion CP to Tank Colonel Lopez's office. And I explained to him what I just heard. And he looked at me and he said three words. He said, write it up. So I went back to the company CP. And I grabbed my XO, Lieutenant Rudy Salcedo, and I grabbed Robinson. And I told this young second lieutenant who had been the platoon commander for all of four freaking months that he needed to write a Medal of Honor citation. That's incredible. That don't happen very often. No. How about that, man? Yeah, that's incredible. How about that? <clears throat> to think like that, to think, to think like that. We all know in the moment when that stuff starts slowing down and speeding back up, but to have the wherewithal to do that. Our boys that jump on the grenades are a different breed altogether. Mm -hmm. They just are. We, we got a few of them. The thing about Dunham, the thing that hits you about it, Knowing what I know of him now, you know, he loved his Marines so much. He didn't just take care of them. He practiced taking care of them. Who fucking practices covering a live grenade with their helmet? Yeah. He obviously had like a God wink, like a premonition of this can happen one day. Work on it. I mean, from what he told his dad at Christmas and then practicing that, having those discussions with his uh, teammates, like there was something in his head that knew this might happen. This is a possibility. Oh, sure. Putting Absolutely. it together now. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing his story. And yeah, what, when does the. What do we need to do, man? Yeah. How can we help, help you guys? When does it help come the Dunham well, family, or, or what do we? We're we're still we're still talking to people about uh, distribution. Um, a lot of the mainstreamers, I don't think, are interested in it. You know, um, we're 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 thinking about self releasing. I have two versions of this. I have a two hour version, which I've been running around at all the festivals, but I have a five part series, which is what I'm trying to push towards streamers. So we're thinking about self-releasing this thing. We, we haven't made a decision yet. I'm still in talks with a few people. Um, it, it's going to get out there one way or the other. We set up a website for uh, people to, to go to to sign up for news on, on the actual release and the trailers on there and stuff like that. So it's going to get out there. We, we, we just don't know when. Oh, yet. sure. And you got a Christmas present, too. So it's <laughs> yeah. just a matter of getting the audience and yeah. we can help you out with that, man. So are yeah, you going to go around and do more uh, soft releases, like kind of fundraiser style? 
Yeah, you know, I've been in talks with um, Metal Water Museum in Texas, and I approached them after uh, a Medal of Honor um, place in Chattanooga reached out and asked if we would like to do a screening there. So I, I, I contacted the museum. I've been talking to them, and I said, hey, guys, I said, why don't we do – I said, I would love to screen the gift for you guys, and you guys can wrap a whole fundraiser around it and raise money for the Metal of Honor Museum. Oh, sure. So we're talking about – we're talking about doing that and, and, you know, getting the word out with that. And there's the Medal of Honor Society in South Carolina. And I'm talking to them about doing that as well. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to Jason Van Camp. We're going to talk about doing something for Warrior Rising, do some kind of fundraiser and screening here in Salt Lake. Um, so we're, you know, I'm still, I'm still pushing it. It's not I'm hard to get the out, word out so. about the Honor Boys. Yeah. They're, they're a select group. If yeah. you want us you know to host about? a yeah. screening in Houston, we can do that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. But um, what? Absolutely. What's the website? Can you tell our yeah, listeners? Yeah, how can people how find it and track you down? If you could give us all that before we... Watchthegift.com. You can find all our social media stuff on there as well. Um, yeah, that, that'll that'll basically get, get you uh, connected with everything. Social media and all that stuff, Andrew. You got, you got yeah, we'll plug it. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Andrew's got all that. Can we add pictures of Dunham to the uh, YouTube when we post this? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll send Andrew. I think I sent Andrew. Did I send you a bunch? Yeah, I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you all so much for telling yeah, the man. story. And... Right on, brother. Keep us posted, man. And we'll, we'll yeah. Andrew and everybody will let you know when this drops. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it was good to everybody. meet you. Dave, good to see you again, brother, man. Yeah, you too. I appreciate it, man. All right, y'all. God bless. Thanks, man. guys. Take appreciate care. it. Thanks, Trent. Okay. All right, thanks. Thanks.